0: Rocketry, in some form, has been around for two millennia. But few developments we cover in this series will have such a stupendous level of development as the rocket in such a short period of time. From a minor warfare and science fiction, to 30 years later and the ability to kill everybody on Earth and launch humans into outer space. As David Baker wrote, quote, to be capable of surviving the death of the solar system represents a major step in human evolution. Perhaps the most important step in human evolution since Neanderthal hordes of Europe and Asia were replaced by Homo sapiens sapiens some 40,000 years ago. The development of rocket propulsion is inextricably linked to the deepest aspirations of the human spirit. Close to know where to start the story of the rocket, it is useful to define what a rocket actually is. The definition is, quote, a cylindrical projectile that can be propelled to a great height or distance by the combustion of its contents, used typically as a firework or signal, close quotes. Now, For most of history, the rocket was powered by gunpowder, but as we have a separate episode planned on gunpowder, I will try and limit this episode somewhat to rockets propelled with a liquid propellant, especially as that is what the popular consciousness normally thinks of a rocket being. The early history of the rocket is tied up with gunpowder. It is sometimes easy to forget just how old the civilization of China is. During the Han Dynasty, stories grew of a mystical black powder around 200 BC. And stories also grew of a compound which, when packed into a hollow bamboo cane, can explode with terrifying noise. The firecracker was used at celebratory functions and military campaigns. But it was all spectacle. It would take another millennia in about 960 AD for fire-arrow technology to start to be perfected. The Chinese contraption contained a box which fired arrows with the help of a fuse lead. The technology was very inefficient compared to a human firing arrows, but the loud bang and the fact it could fire 300 meters meant it was used to create confusion and terror more than anything else. By the 13th century, and rocket technology was becoming more effective. A rocket launcher was invented that could travel over a few hundred meters and create a fire of about 10 meters in height. And by this point, Genghis Khan and his Mongol hordes were using rocketry with great effect. But more consequentially, the Silk Road they were helping to develop helped to spread the black powder across Asia and towards Europe. Roger Bacon learned of the black powder and wrote up an improvement on it. Nobody knows if it was his own work, but what it showed was that the technology had spread quickly across Eurasia. With Europe learning of rocketry, it would be the West where all the developments would take place in rocketry. It should come as no surprise to us that there were little improvements anywhere in the world with rocket technology during this period. Science was not having its strongest moment in the late medieval period. With most scientific knowledge still relying on the Greeks, this was not fertile land for new scientific experiments. This could be shown with the ideas of what to do with rockets by some Italian and German theorists during the late middle ages. In one concept, a rocket would be launched from a boat, rush along the surface, and drive a spike into the hull of an attacking ship. Something far too ambitious for the technological sophistications of contemporary rocket knowledge. Furthermore, this was all theory. There was no testing of hypotheses like the scientific method requires. Throughout this period, rocket devices were used in land warfare in Europe and for entertaining diplomatic displays for foreign guests. While the scientific knowledge behind many of these concepts were not codified, intuitive knowledge allowed for gradual improvements to start being made in the 17th century. The duration of the burn phase only allowed a maximum of a few thousand meters height by this point. Roger Bacon had tried to improve on range to little effect in his day, but it was in 1650 with Polish artillery expert, Kasimir Svenowicz who published a guide on how to improve range. By placing a series of three or four powder filled tubes in tandem, the rocket could be made to fly further. The use of different tubes ignited one after another rather than just one, was a key development in rocket theory. Savenovich's theories were soon translated into every major European language and into the hands of the military. The thing with inventions is that the progress of knowledge can have unintended consequences. Perhaps the most important person ever actually born on Christmas Day in 1642, Isaac Newton, developed rapidly the knowledge about the physical world, and this was always going to help rocket technology. His three laws were laid down, and the second and third were revolutionary in rocket science. Newton's second law, quote, In an inertial frame of reference, the vector sum of the forces F on an object is equal to the mass M of that object multiplied by the acceleration of the object, F equals A. It is assumed here that the mass M is constant. Close Third law quote, When one body exerts a force on a second body, the second body simultaneously exerts a force equal in magnitude and opposite in direction on the first body. Close quotes. While of course some of this knowledge had been applied before, the explanation and codification of the laws helped to spur on knowledge, though it would take 100 years for anybody to put two and two together and use this newfound knowledge and apply it. By the late 18th century and European science hadn't quite pulled away from the rest of the world just yet. It was still ahead but the rapid technological progress of the Industrial Revolution was only just coming on top. At the time, Britain was encroaching into India. Numerous battles were fought as the British gained control. However, the British were attacked with a surprising amount of force and a surprising weapon. Hyder Ali had built a rudimentary rocket, with metal tubes, projectiles, Fastened to a three metre long bamboo cane, they had an effective range of about 1.5 kilometres. In a battle on Seringapatam in 1792, 5,000 rocket troops were sent into battle, and the British camp were caught completely unawares as a hail of fiery projectiles bombarded their camp. A second battle with similar tactics in the same place in 1799, led the British military to heed what happened and look into rocket technology themselves. In Woolwich Arsenal, home to the Royal Laboratory, they were ordered to design and test rocket devices. (coughs) Colonel William Congreve in 1804, by applying Newton's theories, created an iron rocket weighing 14.5 kilograms, with a range of 1.8 kilograms at the cost of one pound each to produce. This being the height of Napoleon's ambitions against the British, the ambition was to launch the rocket at French troops in Boulogne. However, a storm meant the attempts didn't go quite as intended. A year later, and the range had been improved to 2.7 kilometers. And when tried this time, The rocket caused chaos in France. The British then used their rockets against the town of Kaloa in 1809, Cadiz in 1810 and Leipzig in 1813. It wasn't long until people started copying the British. From a small village in India to all over Europe and then the world. Globalisation in action. After the death of Congreve, it was the great name of Konstantin Konstantinov who made a rocket travel five kilometers in 1826, a record he held until 1860. However, rocket technology hit a smack during the late Victorian period, as the limits of gunpowder was reached. As scientists, philosophers and dreamers wondered about where on Earth, or into outer space, the rocket could take them, it was dawning to them that the little black powder had its limitations. Added to this was the increasing quality of artillery which rendered too much investment in rocketry a waste of money. Russia is a strange country, a riddle rat in an enigma as Churchill called it. Backwards and rural it, it still has created some of the greatest scientists, writers, mathematicians and theorists the world has ever seen. Konstantin Edvardich Tilkovsky was a Russian school teacher who taught himself all about physics and, in the obscure town of Borisov, he wrote a paper called Exploration of Space with Reactive Devices, which can be summarised in five points. 1. Space travel is possible 2. This can be accomplished by means of and only by means of rocket propulsion as this is the only thing that will work in space. Three, gunpowder cannot be used as it simply doesn't have enough energy. Four, certain liquids do have enough power. Using two liquids in a chamber and igniting them, the resulting gases could be channeled through an orifice at the rear where they would propel the device. Five, liquid hydrogen is a good fuel and liquid oxygen would be the perfect oxidizer. Tsiolkovsky wrote that to achieve the speed of eight kilometers per second, the device must carry propellant weighing four times the empty weight of the rocket. The significance of the eight kilometers per second mark is that this is the needed speed for orbital flight. The year 1903 was perhaps the best time to publish this work. It was the year the Wright brothers flew the first heavier-than-air machine. People were excited and ready for this new technology. Russia, however, with a weak Tsar, soon to be humiliated against the Japanese and then the Germans, didn't have much time, energy, or enough spare capital to put these theories into practice. In the research for this podcast, I read a bit of Chilkovsky's work. And it's astoundingly prophetic to see what he wrote over a hundred years ago. He wrote about colonising the solar systems, how we should use the sun's energy for our own uses. It is rare for a theoretician to have such a huge impact on a field as Tilskovsky does on rocketry. And I wonder how many of us out there had heard about him. I didn't before I read the research for this topic. Edwin Starr once asked us war, what is it good for, and then he answered himself by saying absolutely nothing. Well, in the case of rocketry at least, war was good for quite a lot. The Great War was the most demanding war yet fought. The first truly global war, and a completely total war. Everything was put on developing newer and deadlier weapons during this time. But rocketry was still a new technology and it wasn't quite ready for military use just yet. However, the next World War would see the rocket become a key weapon during this period. Thousands of miles away from the Western Front, where Robert Goddard, who gained his PhD in 1911, was working on rocket technology. Like Chilkovsky, he gleaned that liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen would be the best method for getting a liquid-propelled rocket off the ground. Pun intended. By 1914, he held a large amount of patents for rocket motors, and was experimenting with rockets near his home, with lots of success. He soon reached a point where he was showing that the concept worked, and that all he needed was further experimentation. In contrast to the United Kingdom, who were at war by this point, And due to differences we've seen, and will see, a lot, both in this episode and many more still to come, Goddard received no government help from the US state, unlike that of William Congreve. Like many Americans before and after, Goddard was relying on charity and private enterprise. Goddard received $5,000 from the Smithsonian Institute to continue his research. However, something then happened which resulted in seemingly the only occasion the U.S. government does provide money for scientific initiatives, war. The U.S. entered the war on the Allies' side, and Goddard was shipped off to California to conduct experiments on military rockets. The result was a design for a 3.5 kilogram rocket that could travel 1.5 kilometers. By the end of the war, Goddard had built many different types of rocket; the largest of which was 20 kilograms. Then the war ended. Goddard had to go back to his day job. In 1919 he published a report titled A Method of Reaching Extreme Altitude. Writing the piece helped to focus the mind of Goddard and gave him a level of introspection that he had never reached before in the piece goddard said that the ultimate destiny of the rocket was to fly to the moon there was little scientific reason to do so but it would help in future in taking possible scientific instruments into space the piece was jumped on by newspapers well most of the last bit about the potential use of rockets to get us into space goddard was labeled perhaps not in the best spirit as moon man in 1920, he received another $3,500 and began working on military research, but he was struggling to get a liquid-propelled rocket to work. The theory and practice of it was still poles apart. It took another year of tinkering and developing before he was ready. An engine, oxygen pump and motor that even Goddard would probably admit was not the best, but it was all he had. On the 6th of December 1925, he ran the rocket for 24 seconds, and the rocket rose slightly in its cage, before exhausting its supply. With a few more tests on the 28th of January, the device rose as high as it was possible in the controlled environment Goddard set up. The next test was a free flight. With four assistants and his wife, Goddard set up the test. Lit by a blowtorch, the liquid oxygen and gasoline propellants lighted, and the rocket lifted slowly into the air. The flight lasted 2.5 seconds, reaching a height of 12.5 metres, at an average speed of 96 km an hour. The modern rocket was born. But clearly, this was not going to be the rocket that would take us to the moon and back. With the rocket the size that Goddard used, however, it would need to be a lot bigger to have any value. Goddard then designed a rocket 20 times the size. This time it had an electrical ignition system and new designs for injecting the propellant into. Goddard continued his experiments with some success and almost no failure. In almost secrecy, as America headed towards a depression, the experiments continued. In 1930, he tested a rocket that rose 610 metres into the air at a speed of 800 kilometres per hour, when the fastest aeroplanes had not even reached 650 kilometres per hour. Over the 1930s, Goddard continued to make improvements to his rocket, but he was a lone brilliant man in a country where rocketry was not given much attention. It was in Germany where the biggest strides were being made. And so we will go to Germany. In 1927, just after Goddard had shown that liquid propellants were a possibility, the VFR, or the Society for Space Travel, was formed in Germany. They were spurred into action by the publication of the Rocket into Interplanetary Space by Hermann Oberth. The VRF started to experiment with rocket technology a few trials here and a few trials there and they started to catch up with goddard's work on the 14th of march 1931 they finally set a liquid propelled rocket into the air the first non-us launch the names of willie Ley and the very german ones of Hermann oberth and most famously werner von braun were at the forefront of this work The VRF had made tremendous progress, but concurrently the army had started to develop rockets in complete secrecy. Germany was still a party to the restrictions as per the Treaty of Versailles, and so in the pre-Nazi era much of the German army's efforts were based around covert funding of the VRF, but the VRF were only interested in civilian use of the technology. And so the German army had to set up a separate military installation for its work. After some more demonstrations in 1932, the society's work caught the attention of the German army. When the Nazi Party took over, the VRF were suspected of not quite wholesome political activities and so were shut down. The army, however, were not unawares of the potential military possibilities for the rocket, and it was to be them who would develop it further. The VRF team, headed by Werner Von Braun, started to work for the German Army and under Walter Dornberger, started to develop the Aggregate 1 or A1 rocket. The A1 consisted of a single liquid propellant motor capable of nearly 300 kilograms of thrust. The testing of the A1 was a moderate success. And so they moved onto the A2. Basically the same rocket, but this time with the propellant in two separate tanks. To test the rocket, they went to an island 15 kilometres out onto the North Sea and watched it travel 2.2 kilometres into the air. A great success. After the success of the A2 was the next obvious development, the A3. A totally different rocket and something I think... Could be described as a missile. The A3 really was now a military weapon, with the Army Chief of Staff General Fire Werner von Fritz, nobody quite has names like the Germans, inspecting the test site. The rocket, facilitating more money from the German High Command, led to the team starting the A4. With a range of 260 kilometres, weighing one tonne the rocket had speeds of 5,800 kilometers per hour. Because of the short burn duration of the rocket, the maximum power of the rocket would need to be expanded. This meant passing Mach 1, the speed of sound. The current theory of the time said this wasn't possible. Furthermore, the rocket was designed to fly to the very edge of space. After much redesigning of the rocket, and now weighing 750 kilograms, the rocket was taken to the small island of Greifswald Oy, just off the Baltic coast, where the weather blocked any testing of the rocket. When it was finally able to be tested, the rocket flew one kilometer into the air and then crashed back down to earth. The development of a long range ballistic missile continued. The A4 was in limbo, as the A3 was experiencing difficulties in its design. So, it was decided to completely reinvigorate rocket design, starting with the A5. Over the next year, the A5 was developed. In March 1939, Hitler visited the experimental station at Kummersdorf West, where Werner von Braun talked to the dignitaries about their work on the A3 and his plans for the A5. Hitler was reported as being totally uninterested in the rockets, and his senior chief of staff only seemed to care about marvelling at the levels of German engineering prowess. As Hermann Göring went around the facility with boyish enthusiasm, he failed to comprehend the enormous potential of the rocket. The team under Werner von Braun realised they only had one option if they were to keep favour with the Nazi party. It would have to develop rockets for purely military means. In October 1939, the A5 was ready for testing. With von Braun on the commands of the radio transmitter, the rocket shot up 1.5 kilometres into the air and von Braun descended the parachute and the hull of the rocket which splashed down into the Baltic. The test of another A5 the next day led to the same result. And on the third day, another A-5 rocket went four kilometers into the air before its parachute was deployed. However, the A-5 wasn't the main aim. The development of the A-5 was mainly for research into the A-4, which was still being researched and planned, albeit very slowly. With the war now on, and with von Braun's insistence, the German army agreed to fund more work on rocket technology. The A4 was always the plan as a long-range ballistic weapon to use against enemies. Von Braun said it could be ready by 1943, perhaps earlier. While the army and technocrats realised the potential of rocketry, Hitler and the Nazis did not. Hitler was far more concerned with ground armour and air power, and... With the early successes in Poland, the Low Countries, Scandinavia and France, he was right, wasn't he? There is a theory that Hitler could have been a lot worse. Imagine an instance, for example, if Hitler was competent. In his marvellous biography of Hitler, Ian Kershaw called Hitler a ultimate unperson. person Germany was taken over by an unremarkable man of very little talent in any area a man of little personal charisma or intelligence. This cradle of Western culture, the home of Goethe, Beethoven, Bismarck and Bach, was reduced to rule by this pathetic little man who had bad tastes in everything, including facial hair. Imagine, for example, if Hitler had been Napoleon, Julius Caesar, Alexander of Macedon, the world would be speaking German. Here is the evidence of that. Unable to formulate new tactics, Britain and Russia would have been devastated by German advances in rocketry had they been fully pursued. Hitler simply failed to see that the development of this new technology would be essential, even only two years after having the military technological edge. That's how quickly technology can develop in wartime. So, by 1940... The rocket teams could still only talk theoretically about the A4, as they progressed slowly with A5 flights. The main issue was the rocket motor itself. They were looking for a high thrust engine that could provide consistent and reliable power. But with most military tech focused elsewhere, this search was proving hard. It took until 1942 for the design of the A4 to be finalised, 14 metres tall, 13 tonnes when all the fuel was added, and capable of more than 300 kilometres flight, rising to a height of 85 kilometres at 4,500 kilometres per hour. Had the army backed the development of A4, it could have been built by early 1941, perfect for the Battle of Britain and Operation Barbarossa. It was only when it was built that the Nazi hierarchy saw its potential. By the winter of 1942, they chose a date of December 1943 for the mass production of the rocket, and a facility on the Channel was built aimed directly at Britain. The A4 rocket was seen by most of the people present, and historians now, as a remarkable piece of engineering but always as something that would lead to something more powerful. Nevertheless, they still targeted 300 rockets to be produced every month, starting from January 1944, and then 600 per month by June. However, the ambitious push to a 4 production was put in doubt by constant neglect of the staff, and requests for more staff was ignored. When Albert Speer, now the Munitions Minister, sent a paper request to Hitler for more resources, he got an odd response. Hitler had had a dream that the A4 would never become a wonder weapon and that it would never reach England. Therefore, the requests were ignored. This changed, however, when a Bombardment Commission inspected and reported on the work and saw a launch of an A4 rocket, and news fed back to Hitler and it seemed to start changing his mind on the topic. This was solidified when von Braun made a film showing off the A4 and showed it to Hitler. It seemed the general German population en masse were the only ones to be led on by proper Gander films. Once Hitler's mind got racing he began to demand more outlandish things of the rocket. He wanted a 10 tonne warhead and then wanted 2000 made month. But now the tide had turned and everybody realized what long-range missiles could do, including the Allies. Propaganda Minister Goebbels, who had dubbed the earlier flying bomb, the, I'm going to try and pronounce this, the Einer, waffe an early cruise missile and not really related to rocketry, hence why we have not really mentioned it. It became popularly known as the V-1 or Revenge Weapon 1. He then started to call this new rocket the V-2. Due to the bad situation Germany now found themselves in, there was a sudden rush to support what was now called the V-2. Hitler put his full backing onto the V-2 rocket and demanded concrete shelters on the Channel Coast to help launch them, until it was pointed out to him that the V-2 could be launched from a mobile stand. His evident earlier dream that the V2 was never going to reach England was proof that Hitler was no Joseph. He evidently didn't even possess a technicolour dreamcoat. On the 8th of September 1944, the first V2s were being launched at England and Allied-controlled Netherlands. D-Day landings had taken place on the 6th of June 1944. In that month, 350 V2 rockets were launched. In November, this reached 600. It had taken only eight months from the design of the A4 rocket to the launch of the V2 missile. It is impossible to calculate the success of the V2 rockets from a military standpoint. They caused much damage, but often missed their targets. Something that with more time to test them would have undoubtedly solved. 1,500 were fired against England during the war. As they flew faster than sound, they could not be heard, and it could not be shot down. But by the 27th of March, 1945, all the V-2 bombing had ceased. Following the war, it came time to work out what would happen to these rocket engineers. En masse, they decided to surrender to the Americans, escaping the clutches of the SS, who may very well have used them as pawns in a ransom. On the 6th of April, 1945, they set off for the Allied frontiers. When they reached the Americans, they told them they wished to surrender. Several hundred rocketeers, including Dornberger and Von Braun, surrendered. The war was over, but rocketry was only just beginning. In what can be said as the spoils of war, under its codename Operation Paperclip, The Americans captured 127 German scientists, engineers and technicians, and, even if the Russians got more in the end, the Americans had got most of the important ones, plus much of the paperwork about the rockets that came along with von Braun. The 127 were moved to Fort Bliss in Texas, as the US Army built them the necessary equipment for testing. It took until the 14th of March 1946, almost a year since the last V-2 was fired, for the 127 to be able to repeat it on US soil. Now it was time to turn the tech into something useful for the US military. The immediate focus during this time was working on ballistic missiles. Now, as we spent a good portion of this podcast already, On the A rockets and then the V-2, the development of ICBMs is rather dull. So I'll skip forward a little bit to the date of the 4th of October, 1957, when Soviet news agencies announced the launch of Sputnik. A satellite launched into space and successfully orbiting the planet. A month later, and the launch of Sputnik 2 saw the first dog, Laika, sent into space. The launch of the satellite on the back of an ICBM was the most obvious sign of Soviet rocket technology and it forced the US into action. Four months after the launch of Sputnik, a Von Braun team successfully launched its first satellite on a four-stage Juno-1 rocket derived from the US Army's Redstone missile at Cape Canaveral. On the 2nd of April, 1958 President Eisenhower presented the National Aeronautics and Space Act to the House and Senate for ratification establishing NASA. With further developments the Juno 1 rocket was developed and in the closing stages of 1958 von Braun changed its name to the Saturn rocket. With the election of Kennedy a dreamer The budget for NASA was raised by almost 50%. However, the Saturn rocket, now a whole family of many different types of rockets, was still proven difficult to launch. On the 12th of April, 1961, Yuri Gagarin was sent into space. With the Cold War heating up, this was not good news for the US, and so Kennedy asked NASA to come up with a response. They only came back with the suggestion of sending men around the moon. This was rejected as officials saw this as already within near-Soviet capacity. Consequently, on the 25th of May 1961, in foresight not used to coming from politicians' mouths, Kennedy made a speech before Congress. Quote:
1: The dramatic achievements in space which occurred in recent weeks. Should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. Since early in my term, our efforts in space have been under review. With the advice of the Vice President, who is chairman of the National Space Council, We have examined where we are strong and where we are not, where we may succeed and where we may not. Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. I believe we possess all the resources and talents necessary, but the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long-range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. I therefore ask the Congress above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. And none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. In conclusion, let me emphasize one point. It is not a pleasure for any president of the United States, as I'm sure it was not a pleasure for my predecessors, to come before the Congress and ask for new appropriations, which place burdens on our people. I came uh, with uh, to this conclusion uh, with some reluctance. But in my judgment, this is a most serious time in the life of our country and in the life of freedom around the globe. And it is the obligation, I believe, of the President of the United States to at least make his recommendations to the members of the Congress so that they can reach their own conclusions uh, with that judgment before them. You must decide yourselves as I have decided. And I am confident that whether you finally decide uh, in the way that I have decided or not, that your judgment as my judgment is reached on what is in the best interests of our country.
0: The dreams of Tsiolkovsky, Herman Oberth, and Robert Goddard had been reached. Two days after, Von Braun announced a new addition to the Saturn family, the C3, capable of lifting 45 tons into Earth orbit. It was ideas like this that would be needed to fulfill Kennedy's dream. It was decided to use the Saturn rocket on the Apollo program. By November 1962, it was decided that men would land on the moon by way of two separate spacecraft launched on top of a single Saturn V rocket. On Thursday, November twenty-first, 1963, Kennedy said that the launch of the Saturn I SA-5 rocket saw the US finally overtake Soviet rocket capabilities. One day later, Kennedy was assassinated. NASA had the designs. Now it was all about developing the rockets and testing them. It took until November 1967 for the rocket to finally be launched. As much a technological marvel as the V2. As of 2019, the Saturn 5 remains the tallest, heaviest, and most powerful rocket ever brought into operation. It still holds the record for the heaviest payload launch and largest payload capacity to low Earth orbit of 140 kilograms. The Saturn V remains the only launch vehicle to carry humans beyond low Earth orbit. A total of 15 capable flight vehicles were built, but only 13 were flown. An additional three vehicles were built for ground testing purposes. A total of 24 astronauts were launched to the moon, three of them twice, in the four years spanning December 1968 through to December 1972. But by the early 1970s, spaceflight was facing disinterest. The Saturn V was to be the high watermark of rocket technology. And so had I published this podcast in the first decade of the 21st century, I would have had to end it there. But in the last 10 years or so, there has been new roots in the progress of rocketry. Not anything quite as revolutionary as the V2 or the Saturn V, but something at least. Elon Musk's SpaceX has started, or one could say, reinvigorated rocket technology. SpaceX's achievements include the first privately funded liquid propelled rocket to reach orbit, the Falcon 1 in 2008. The first private company to successfully launch, orbit, and recover a spacecraft, Dragon in 2010. The first private company to spend a spacecraft to the International Space Station, Dragon in 2012. The first propulsive landing for an orbital rocket, Falcon 9 in 2015, and the first reuse of an orbital rocket, Falcon 9 in 2017, and the first private company to launch an object into orbit around the sun, Falcon Heavy's payload of a Tesla Roadster in 2018. Going to the moon has been a source of inspiration and dreaming for many people throughout history. Rocket technology, has made it possible. Like few other technologies on this list, rocketry is a source of inspiration and amazement, but it can also be the source of devastation and destruction. It can get us to the moon, but with the push of a button, rockets could destroy the world many times over. Nevertheless, the rocket has changed the world entirely, not only allowing us to dream, but in fulfilling those dreams too, And for that reason, the rocket is listed at number 78 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.